0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment
1: or rating in iTunes. So um, I'm now about to give you an hour-long talk in 18 minutes. So uh, fasten your seatbelts. So here's an outline of what I'm going to be doing today. I'm going to begin by providing sort of a conceptual framework for how we think of the role of experience in brain and behavioral development talk a little bit about the history of what led Romania to abandon and orphan so many children, why neglect is bad for the brain, and then findings from this project that Darnay just mentioned. Uh, I'm going to focus today disproportionately on behavior, and tomorrow I'll turn my attention to brain and biology. So we need to begin with the premise that experience is really the engine that drives much of postnatal brain development that some experiences are, or at least should be, universal to all members of the species. So, for example, sensory input and caregiving, and and these help ensure survival. Others may optimize development. So, for example, it's one thing to have a caregiver who just simply feeds you. It's another to have a caregiver who is responsive to your needs and sensitive to your needs. Exposure to complex but age-appropriate language, age-appropriate cognitive stimulation. In many cases, both classes of experience have to occur during a narrow window of time, which we often refer to either as a sensitive period or a critical period, for development to proceed along a typical healthy developmental trajectory. Two additional points about experience, of course, is that it cuts both ways. Uh, this is a, a, a phrase that I, for years, attributed to Bill Greeno, and then Bill Greeno told me actually it was Jay McVicker Hunt who talked about this. So that if a child is exposed to adverse experiences during this critical period of development, infection, maltreatment, lack of caregiving, or deprived of expectable experiences like nutrition or caregiving, then brain development can be undermined. And the second is that brain plasticity changes with age. In some domains, changes is possible throughout the lifespan. For example, barring pathology will all be be capable of learning and memory throughout all lifespans, but on the other hand, there are other domains where change is limited to the first years, for example, vision and hearing. We don't learn to see better or to hear better. So in today's talk, what I'm going to focus on is what happens to the brain when there's a profound violation of the expectable environment during a critical period of development, specifically what happens to children who experience profound deprivation early in life. And then the second question is, can these deleterious effects of early deprivation be reversed, and if so, are there temporal constraints on doing so? So just by way of background, we know that neglect is the most common form of child maltreatment in the United States. That uh, basically, that was, sorry, I was just trying to impress you with my PowerPoint skills. (laughs) That that 75% of all cases of maltreatment involve neglect. That... A particularly extreme form of neglect is being raised in conditions of profound psychosocial deprivation, such as the 8 million children around the world who live in institutions. And I should also add that there are about 140 million orphans around the world. So uh, through the, uh, the, the, the gracious funding of the MacArthur Foundation, In the late 1990s, I was chairing a research network on early experience and brain development, and two members of the group, Charlie Zina and Nathan Fox, and I launched what is now known as the Bucharest Early Intervention Project, which continues to this day. And there were three goals. One was to examine the effects of institutionalization on brain and behavioral development. A second is to determine if these effects can be remediated through an intervention, in our case, very high-quality foster care. And the third was to improve the welfare of children in Romania by establishing foster care as an alternative to institutional care. In Romania, at the time, they viewed institutional care as the intervention for child abandonment. So just by way of background, this really uh, was an experiment in social engineering engineered by Nikolai Ceausescu, who is this individual here. So in 1966, Ceausescu, who took over... Uh, the country, he was a shoe cobbler by trade, had an idea that he could increase his power if he increased the population. And to increase the population, he set into motion a series of decrees, which began with the menstrual police. So these were state gynecologists who conducted monthly checks of women uh, of childbearing age who had had fewer than five kids to make sure they weren't using birth control or hadn't uh, terminated a pregnancy. He established a celibacy tax, whereby families received a stipend if they had more than two kids, but they were taxed heavily if they had fewer than five. And finally, he had outlawed all contraception and abortion. And the result was that, in uh, before, before I go to that, was that By the time he was overthrown in 1889, there were more than 170,000 children living in state-run institutions. So I now want to show you a brief video clip of an individual now in his 30s who was the byproduct of one of these early uh, uh, orphaned children.
0: In 1989, Communism fell and the world went to Romania to cover the fall of Ceausescu. There were some medias that actually found institutions. Institutions that were never meant to be discovered by the public or the outside world. It left the world in shock that such conditions even existed.
2: Those of us who visited these institutions built by the Communist regime are unlikely ever to forget them. Hundreds of children not so much cared for as contained.
0: Well, at the age of six months old, I became ill. And my parents took me to a hospital uh, to be treated for my illness. But instead of finding healing at a hospital, I actually ended up being infected with polio. My parents took me to a different hospital in Sigetu Marmatsia. They never came back so the state permit in an institution for handicapped children an orphanage known as home hospital for the irrecoverable children what's in this room no one could prepare for filthy dark and stinking there's excrement everywhere these boys are the most difficult cases they deserve the best of care instead they get the worst From the moment that we could remember for ourselves, that's all we knew. We didn't have compassion. We didn't have feelings or emotions. We just existed to just vegetate, you know. We were just wild animals that needed to be caged up, is what we were considered
1: pretty much. Okay, I think we've seen enough of that. Um, So um, as someone who in my other life studies neurodevelopmental disorders, I I actually recognize this phenotype. The difference is that the disorders I study usually are single gene mutations, whereas these are a byproduct of the environment for the most part. So uh, we've known for decades that children... Uh, Reardon institutions are at a very high risk for a variety of cognitive, social, and behavioral problems, including disturbances in social relatedness and attachment, externalizing behavior problems, inattention, hyperactivity, deficits in IQ and executive functions, and a syndrome that mimics autism, and then growth stunting. So here's an example of growth stunting. So I want you to be thinking of these are boys or girls and how old they are. So this is a 17-year-old girl, and this is a 14-year-old girl. And as a rule, children children lose about a month of linear growth for every one month they spend in a highly deprived environment. So the study we did is actually a randomized controlled trial of foster care as an alternative to institutional care. And the way we did this is that we screened more than 180 infants and, and uh, baby, basically kids under about a year or two to make sure they didn't have a frank neurological or genetic syndrome. We could only do behavioral exams. We couldn't do blood work and the like. And of more than 180, we wound up at the 136 that we considered to be typically developing. Not easy to do when you're looking at babies who are 9, 10, or 11 months of age, but they look to be typically developing. And we also recruited a sample of 72 children in the community who had never been in an institution. They lived with their family. After an extensive baseline assessment, these 136 children were randomly assigned to either to remain in institutional care, what we'll call care as usual, or to be randomly assigned to a high-quality foster care program that we built, maintain, and paid for ourselves. Um, The original goal was to see these children for the first few years of life, so in fact we saw them at 9, 18, 30, and 42 months, and at 54 months, at which point the intervention formally ended and was turned over to the authorities. Then we thought we would go a little bit longer, so I found funding at age 8, and we saw them then. And then I was tired of commuting to Romania, but then I found funding at age 12. And I said, that's enough, but then we found more money. And then we saw them at age 16, and we were just refunded to see them again at 21. In fact, I'm there in three weeks to launch the 21-year follow-up of these kids. So the three of us who do this work come from different backgrounds, and we're all thick-headed. So when it came time to discuss what was the most important thing to study, this is the short list of what we came up with, because we really couldn't agree on what were the most important things to study. I thought naturally it was the brain and Charlie Zena thought it was mental health. Um, So I'm going to summarize just a small set of the findings because of, of time limits. And all the findings I'll talk about today and for those of you here tomorrow are based on what's called an intent-to-treat design. There are a lot of ethics involved in the study that I'm not going to talk about, but what this comes down to is that we fully expected over time the original the children in one group or the other would change group assignments. A classic example would be a child who was randomly assigned to the institutional group. The authorities decided that child should be reunited with their biological family or that child should go into government foster care or be adopted. We had no in this, we didn't interfere in this, but over time children changed their group assignment. But we analyze their data based on their original randomization schedule, because that avoids the pitfalls of selective of sample bias. Um, so I'll start with IQ and then move from there. At baseline, when the kids on average are about 20 months using the Bailey exam, you can see that the children in the institutional group are actually below the cut point for intellectual disability compared to the children in the never-institutional group. So then the question is, what happens following random assignment to foster care? We'll start with this. This is going out to 54 months. At every age, you'll see that the children in foster care have markedly higher IQs than the children in the institutional group. And here, the more important finding is that This is only foster care. The children placed under the age of two have markedly higher IQs than the children placed after two. Even as late as 12 years of age, what we see is we still see an intervention effect. Here's full-scale IQ, never institutional group, foster care group, institutional group. And one thing to keep in mind is that this intervention was not designed as a cognitive stimulation program. It was designed to build relationships. So we didn't have any idea that IQ would benefit like this, but nevertheless, we continue to see this and we see no washout. Even through 16, where we're now going through the data, we still see an intervention effect. Uh, So young children living in institutions show reductions in IQs. Removal from institutional care and placement into high-quality foster care before two leads to a recovery, although not full recovery. Um, and we see stability across the first 12 years of life. Uh, the one thing I'm not going to show you is that when we look at placement disruptions, because it turns out because of the authorities, there were kids who made multiple placements. They went from the institution back to the biological family, re-abandoned, then to foster care. The children who show more placement disruptions have much less favorable outcomes. Stability matters. Turning now to attachment, the issue, the question now is if you look back 50 years in this literature, what you often see are disturbances in attachment behavior. So, this is the relationship a child has with a caregiver. And so, we assume that these perturbations and attachments early in life could alter the trajectories of other aspects of social-emotional development. So let me give you an example uh, of this. This is uh, what's called the strange situation. This is the manipulation where a child is in a room with a caregiver and maybe some toys, and then a stranger walks in the room. You see how the child behaves with the stranger. Then the caregiver leaves. You see how the child interacts with the stranger. Then the stranger leaves and is left alone. And then an adult comes back in the room, and you see how they respond. So this is an 18-month-old, and I want you to watch... Um, what goes on. So right now, this is the phase where the child's been left alone with the toys.
0: So, um
1: This looks like a classic reunion episode. He he jumps into her arms, holds on to her, but that's the first time he's ever met this woman. And that's sort of the indiscriminate behavior that is very common among kids with histories of neglect. In fact, Mike Rutter, the distinguished child psychiatrist in the U.K., argues that this is part of a syndrome of of, of institutionalization syndrome. So what we see at baseline is among the never institutionalized children, about 70% look like they have a secure attachment the same number of of, um, institutionalized children have an insecure attachment. So it's profoundly disruptive at baseline. Now, if you look at the intervention, the children placed in foster care before 22 months, 70% have a secure attachment. The children placed in foster care after 22 months, 70% 20, 70% of an insecure attachment. So we see that same inflection point. At 54 months and then again at 8, and the findings are the same, we did a functional measure of attachment behavior. And what we did is we arranged with the caregiver or the mother that we said a strange, someone was going to knock on the door, let your child answer the door, and let your child do whatever they want to do. So with that arrangement, the stranger knocked on the door, the child answered the door, and the stranger said, come with me, I have something to show you took a lot to get this through our ethics board, and this is sort of every parent's nightmare, right? Um, And the question is, would they walk out the door and walk off with a complete stranger? If you look at the institutional group, more than 50% of the kids in the institutional group walked off with a complete stranger. That was cut in half of the kids in foster care, and there was one in the community who did that, so we've been monitoring that child for 20 years now to see why they did that. So children experiencing early institutional care are... um, Far more likely to develop disturbances in attachment than those who did not, children randomly assigned to foster care following institutional care, particularly if they were younger than 22 to 24 months, are like, more likely to show an improvement in attachment behavior. Lastly, what about the brain? So we assume the behavioral phenotype that we've been observing all these years has its origin in alterations in brain development. And so we've done lots of different things. Um, Over the years, we've done EEG, and and now we've been doing MRI for the last decade or so. I'm only going to talk about the EEG data. So uh, the way to view this is we place sensors on, well, you can see that in this child here. Uh, We place sensors on the the child's head, and we can record the brain's electrical activity. We can color code it uh, so red would reflect more activity. Green would reflect less activity. And what you're looking at here is a view from the top down. Here's the nose, back of the head, left ear, right ear. And notice how much more brain activity there is in the never institutionalized group compared to the institutionalized group. If you move to the foster care placement, this is at age eight. Institutionalized group, foster care after two years of age, and they're identical. Foster care before two years of age, Never institutionalized group, they're identical. So, the same inflection point uh, that we see in IQ and attachment, where there's a cut point sometime around 20 to 24 months. So, children who received the care as usual display deficits in the brain's electrical activity compared to kids randomized to foster care. Children who received the foster care intervention continued to show typical levels of brain activity through age 16, not just 8. And age of placement in foster care was associated with an increase in alpha power. So there were a lot of changes in Romania. Uh, basically, because of, in part, this study, they changed the law that children under two could not be institutionalized and under three. And if you look at the statistics of the number of kids living in institutions, it's plummeted. So the bottom line is let's learn from the science, let's inform policymakers, politicians, and clinicians about the short and long-term effects of early neglect, but in particular that the duration of time spent in a neglectful environment powerfully influences later development. I really can't talk any faster than this. Age of a child when removed from a neglected environment and placed into um, a family is also critical in influencing the outcome. Early neglect can have lifelong effects on both psychological and physical development. And finally, these findings are not limited to children growing up in institutions, but rather generalized to any child experiencing early and profound deprivation, such as parent-child separations. Thank you.
2: I'm going to be talking about what it's like for children who have suffered early damage to their hippocampi, the memory structures of the brain, um, to grow up without episodic memory. So just to give you an idea of what episodic memory is all about, it appears to be an exquisite cognitive system which has recently evolved in modern humans. It's a late developing function and unfortunately, it's an early declining one as well, in old age. It's oriented towards past memories that we have accumulated over a lifetime, and it's vulnerable to neurological injury. Incredibly, it enables us to mental time travel to the past, and also to plan for the future. It allows us conscious re-experience of personal autobiography, And maybe it's unique to humans. This constellation of incredible abilities that we humans possess is dependent on a brain structure called the hippocampus, which you can see on the right-hand side of the slide in blue. And episodic memory is dependent on the integrity of this structure. You see also the amygdala shown in orange behind the head of the hippocampus called the ancus and the amygdala is the center for regulation of our emotions. Hippocampus appears to be critical for our memories. So what are the risks to the integrity of the hippocampus, particularly during early development? Oxygen deprivation seems to be one of the critical factors that can expose babies when they come into the world for a variety of reasons to early hippocampal pathology. One type of risk is children who have congenital heart defects and uh, they require open heart surgery during the first days of life because of various anomalies of the heart that needs to be set right. Extreme prematurity seems to be another kind of risk factor because of the lung insufficiency and also babies who have to be put on heart-lung machine in order to give time to the clinicians to treat them appears to be yet another risk factor. Whatever the etiology is, exposure to lack of oxygen appears to start a chain of reactions which is in a causal sequence. It starts from oxygen deprivation, leading specifically to damage of the hippocampal structures, and then, in turn, leading to the emergence of a memory problem later in childhood, which can range from moderate to developmental amnesia, which I will be describing in a minute. So, I wanted to give you a feeling for the trajectory of cognitive development after such injury occurs. Parents are usually extremely happy because their children have passed this critical stage of very being seriously ill and they think that everything is over because physically the children actually make a very good recovery. So from birth to two years, they develop normally and they acquire all their developmental milestone as expected. Between the ages of two to three years, they develop good speech and language abilities. They go to nursery school, they learn songs, they learn rhymes, their motor development is normal. And really, parents don't suspect that anything is wrong at all. Then, around three or four years of age, they start preschool programs. And there they excel as well. They have developed sight reading, they do copying and drawing, and they do all kinds of um, normal developmental milestones, and they achieve as normal children would. (coughs) However... Around the age of four to eight years, they start showing the first signs of an amnesic syndrome. They forget their belongings. They start repeating questions. They forget instructions. They forget messages. They tend to get lost in new places. They appear to be confused, and they are unable to remember their lessons. This is very strong evidence that they're growing into a deficit which only becomes apparent with increasing age. And this is the way that typically the children present to my clinic when they come, because the parents don't understand where this problem actually came from. So the parent usually says, my child seems to be living at the moment, doesn't seem to be bothered by the past or the future, and cannot plan for anything, The child seems to have a flat affect, and that's important to note. They're not demanding children. They're very easy to live with. And for those of us who have children, we know what it's like when a child wants something. They won't let go of the idea until they get it. Well, these children are not like that. They forget what they want. They're also very disorganized. The teacher says that they're very friendly and polite, but they're too laid back. And they seem very able, but when it comes to the crunch, they can't deliver. And the patient says, I listened in class, and I understood everything that was said. But a little later, I couldn't remember anything. So you have to realize that there is no neurological symptoms. This is a silent damage that shows its symptoms, and there is no evidence of any kind of neurological abnormality. So we start assessing these children to first neuropsychologically find out what the problems are. And we discover that there's a set of weaknesses that they all have, and there's a set of strengths. The set of weaknesses are defined by inability to be able to remember the events of their life. They are unable to recall, and they also do not recollect. Recollect is a very subjective experience but they don't seem to even understand the concept of recollection. On the other hand, they have strengths. They have fantastic factual memory. They're like a dictionary of knowledge, but without context. They have very good recognition so that if they have seen something and you show it in a multiple choice fashion to them, they know which one it is that they have seen before. And they have a sense of familiarity. The neural substrate of their weaknesses appears to be a very marked but fairly selective bilateral hippocampal atrophy. On the other hand, the set of strength seems to be the integrity of the parahippocampal cortex which appears to be relatively preserved. So our first task after having neuropsychologically assessed these children and shown these dissociations, there are three of them, three dissociations, Our next task was to actually verify that there really was damage to the hippocampus because all these weaknesses that I have described are actually dependent on the integrity of the hippocampus. So we needed to be able to demonstrate that the hippocampus is in fact damaged. What you see here is zero is set at the volumes of a large group of normal controls. And then in black, you see the volumes of the hippocampi in the normal controls. Then you see the volumes of the orange cases. These are cases with moderate degree of hippocampal pathology ranging from 15% to 25% of normal. And then you move to the left-hand side where you see the red bars. The red bars are individual cases of amnesic patients that we have seen. And as you can see, reductions above 30% to 75% actually counts as severe enough to warrant the kind of amnesic syndrome that I have described. So you can see the significant difference between the three groups there. The moderates and the controls are not significantly different from each other, but the amnesic patients are. Below that, you see the volumes of the amygdala, unlike the volumes of the hippocampus, the volumes of the amygdala, are not reduced. Here, you see the work of Loic Charignon, who has been measuring the volumes of the hippocampal subfields. Although the entire hippocampus is reduced in volume bilaterally, the the magnitude of the impairment or magnitude of the reduction is far more pronounced towards the posterior part of the hippocampus. In fact, the head of the hippocampus, the uncus, is relatively spared. And then you see the other subfields are also significantly reduced in volume. So what does this do to a child who comes into the world seemingly normal because they've recovered from the injury that they've had, apparently, but they do develop normally in many ways except in this memory domain that I have just mentioned? Here you see the cognitive profile of patients with developmental amnesia during early childhood and later on as adults. So there are 18 of them that have been studied and they're matched with 18 controls. The age range is from 11 to 35. And the most remarkable thing here is the mean memory quotient of this group is 61, which is in the significantly impaired range compared to their mean uh, memory quotient of the normal controls, which is 108. These are standard scores. On the right-hand side, you see the performance of the amnesic group relative to the control group on these measures of full-scale IQ, working memory, literacy, and numeracy. So immediately, it's obvious that these children have developed these skills without the aid of the hippocampus. So these skills are not dependent on the integrity of the hippocampus. So what do they have problems with? Well, they have problems with episodic memory, and that is captured in this test, which actually asks for them to remember a name, a belonging, a root, a simple root, recalling a story, an appointment, pictures of faces, messages, etc but when you look at their ability to be able to associate semantic items together or to remember vocabulary, they do extremely well as normal. So this is the first dissociation that we are able to see very easily in these patients. The second dissociation is an inability to be able to recall but a very good ability to be able to recognize. This is tested through a um, paradigm that has been developed by Alan Badley and his colleagues where he presents for recall verbal items such as remembering a name and a profession of individuals, four individuals, actually, repeatedly presented for recall, and in the nonverbal uh, domain, they're asked to uh, copy shapes, simple shapes, as you can see there, for nonverbal recall over three trials, and then they have to recall them. For recognition, they're given a very difficult test of verbal recognition where a list of 24 words of names of individuals is presented to them, and then later on, they're given multiple choice for each of these items. That's for verbal recognition. And for nonverbal recognition, they're shown a list of 24 doors and then later on they're given four alternative choices of very similar doors, and they have to identify which one they had seen before. So if we look at the performance of the amnesic patients relative to controls, we see that for recognition, both verbal and nonverbal, they're actually doing very well compared to the controls, but there's a disproportionately reduced performance when it comes to recall where they cannot recall the names and the professions of those individuals that they had seen, nor able to recall the shapes that they had learned. And this ability to recognize is not correlated with the volume of the hippocampus, as you can see on the right-hand side of the screen, but it is correlated significantly with the volume of the hippocampus for both verbal recall and nonverbal recall. So this is the second association. Now we move to the third dissociation, which is actually very difficult to demonstrate. The reason is that recollection is a subjective experience. And if we ask the patients to recollect something, they don't even understand what the term means because they've never been able to do it. They don't even understand what recollection experience is like. But it is bringing mind to something that they have experienced before. So, Emre Duzel, in collaboration with our group, tried to get a neurophysiological record of recollection. This is an EEG experiment, an evoked response experiment, whereby the patients were presented with a list of words, about 80 of them, and they had to judge each word and say whether they if they found it to be pleasant or unpleasant. And then later on, at test, they were given. Another list of 80 words mixed in with the words that they had seen before, and they had to judge whether it was a word that had been seen before or not. So it's a recognition paradigm, which they should be good at, but they have to recollect. And at the same time, the uh, EEG is being recorded. So what you can see on the left-hand side of the screen is that in the time window, in the early time window, we get this modulation, which is called the N-400 modulation. And this modulation is associated with the feeling of familiarity. Something appears familiar. It doesn't involve recollection. But later time window, around 600 milliseconds, you get the second modulation, which is called the left positive component. This left positive component is supposed to reflect the generators of the hippocampus, which gives you a feeling of recollection so that you can remember whether you found it pleasant or not. And as you can see, in the normal controls, you see these two modulations both the early one and the late one, but when it comes to the patient with developmental amnesia, you get the early modulation, but the late positive component is missing. Similarly, when you look at the topographic scalp distribution of early versus late evoked responses, you see that the N400 effect is present in the controls, but it's also present in the DA patients, but the late positive component, which is a reflection of recollection, is present in the controls, but it's blue and absent in the DA patient. So this is a measure that, of course, as I say, it's a measure of a subjective experience, and a subjective experience is very difficult to capture by behavior. So we next turn to um, an fMRI experiment, which is even more complicated, but I'll try and simplify it for you. It's using a paradigm of paired associates. Paired associates is a paradigm that really requires the hippocampus' engagement. So patients are shown, patients and controls are shown a word paired with a scene, and they have to try and remember the pairing of the word with that scene. And some of the scenes are urban scenes, and some of them are rural scenes. So, they see a huge number of these words paired with scenes. And then afterwards, they go into the um, scanner, and you can see that their performance is actually uh, very poor compared to controls who are significantly above chance. They get chance level performance. But when we unexpectedly, we did not expect this, but when we actually look at the activation in the brain, we see that the activation is very similar to that of the normal. On the, in the, on the uh, normal controls, you see activation in the parahippocampal cortex and in the retrospedial cortex, which is the network of scene reinstatement. And in the patients, you get almost exactly the same uh, pattern of activation. However, their brain remembers, but they cannot remember the performance themselves, as indicated through the button pressing that they have to do. So I'll quickly go to the next one to, to summarize. So what are the memory processes in developmental amnesia then? We know that they can encode. We know that they can consolidate. We know that they can retrieve, but only through recognition and familiarity, not through the hippocampal-dependent processes of recall and recollection. This then gives them the so-called deprivation that they cannot really subjectively experience their autobiography. So what is autonoitic consciousness? It's the human ability to mentally traverse across time and be able to examine one's own thoughts and the sense of self that affects our behavior in the present, past, and future. Best captured by this passage from Teilhard de Chardin where he says, in the passage of time, a state of collective human consciousness has been progressively evolved which is inherited by each succeeding generation of conscious individuals and to which each generation adds something. That seems to be a type of experience that patients with developmental amnesia do not possess. But I don't want to leave this giving you the impression that it's all negative. In fact, it's very uplifting, because I was having a conversation with one of our patients, and I was asking him whether his memory was a problem for him. And he said, no, my memory is not a problem for me. It's a problem for you. So I said, Well, how come don't your friends get upset with you because you can't remember your appointments, you don't do the things that you've promised them to do? He says, No, on the contrary, my friends are very happy with me. I said, well, How come? He says, Well, for one thing, I don't carry a grudge. <laughs> so I thought, Really, our memories are a gift, and we have to use it for the power of good. Thank you very much for your
3: attention. As you've heard, we live in a time where there's growing concern not only about the potential lifelong impact of deprivation and early adversity in childhood, but we also live in a time of global adversity with rapidly increasing natural disasters, rising political conflict. We have the largest number of refugees we think we've ever had in human history right now, and we're just at the beginning stages of what's going to happen with climate change. And yet, my theme here today is despite these disturbing adversities and their increase, there's evidence of resilience all around us. And we better figure out how to mobilize that capacity to address the scale of problems we have. And many of the issues we've heard about today and many of the global mass trauma threats to human existence in the world today are multi-systemic in nature. And for that reason, this is my preferred definition of resilience. Resilience is the capacity of a system, could be a child, could be a family, an economy, um, a lake, a global climate, a society. But the capacity of a complex adaptive system to adapt successfully to these challenges that threaten system function, survival, or development. And the reason I think it's important to have this kind of a definition is because if we're going to deal with the complexity of the threats facing child development and life on the planet, we have to be able to integrate our sciences across levels. We need a definition of resilience that is scalable from a molecular level up through various increasing macro system levels of social organization. And we need a way to integrate what we know about ecological threats with what we know about social and other kinds of threats. And I also think we need a definition from a developmental perspective that is consistent and recognizes that human beings are developing systems. And I particularly do a lot of research with the living systems like this child and the families in which uh, children are nurtured. But development emerges from many systems interacting over multiple levels. It's an emergent phenomenon. And we also know that the systems of a child li- child's life are not only interacting all the time, but they're embedded with each other and interconnected in such a way that a child's experience is influenced both directly by some of the systems they interact with, their family their friends, they go to school eventually and interact with schools, but also by the systems indirectly connected to children. There are national policies, there are community resources that indirectly affect the development and well-being of children. And my picture here is just the socio-ecological Systems. Of course, there are systems within the child that you've been hearing about all day, and those can be incorporated into the picture as well. So from a systems perspective, resilience is dynamic. It's changing over time because human beings are changing over time. They're developing, they're constantly interacting with other systems, and the capacity for adaptation that you or I have or any child is distributed across systems. It isn't just in the child or just in the individual person because you, have, you can draw on capacity and resources that you have access to via relationships that you have with people like social support and many other systems that can provide you with uh, help and support of many different kinds. Also, child resilience doesn't just depend on many systems outside the child, it also depends on the resilience of those systems. This is strikingly apparent in in a major disaster when all the systems collapse at once, and then we all realize how dependent we are on the operation of many other systems to function in the world. This kind of model also would suggest there are going to be diverse pathways of adaptation There's not just one way, one path that reflects resilience, but there are many different paths of adaptation. It depends on many different individual and contextual differences, as well as development itself. Now, adversity matters, and this is a typical risk gradient here. These data happen to come from an emergency shelter focused on 8- to 10-year-old children. And what you see here is that if you you're already in an emergency shelter, but ignoring that for a minute, if you just count up these major risk factors that are present in the life of the individual children here, you can see that the more risk that's piled up in the life of the children, the more problems they're exhibiting on this measure. But that's on average. And what those kind of pictures don't show is the variation within risk levels. So we know that their, you know, on average problems with health and behavior increase with piling up of risk factors, but we also see a lot of variation and the resilience investigators from the very beginning were fascinated by trying to understand the the people represented by the white spots here, the people that are doing okay or doing very well even though they have been exposed to a lot of risk factors. How do we account for that? Here's a different kind of risk gradient. This one is longitudinal. These are growth curves. These are based on uh, all the reading achievement data in the Minneapolis public schools over a five-year window of time where the kids were tested every fall, which they routinely do using administrative data here. And we've divided the children into four groups to illustrate a continuum of risk. The solid line there in the middle is your norm reference point. This test is designed for growth, so it's measuring improve, you know, increases over time. And what you're looking at in the solid line is around the 50th percentile uh, expected growth. The bottom group are kids who've experienced homelessness at some time during the whole window of this t- period of the study. And we were surprised to see that 14% of the students in the Minneapolis public schools had experienced homelessness. Usually they're picked up when they enter an emergency shelter with their family. Um, but there's other ways. Sometimes people you know, are doubled up or living on the street or something like that. But these kids are pulled out first. So they've experienced a homelessness. It doesn't really matter a whole lot when it was. This is an indicator of high Risk, And you can see here, their reading achievement in the third grade starts around the 12th percentile on average, and, and their achievement is significantly lower than kids who are uh, qualified for free meals, who are living in poverty, but not have, exp- have not experienced homelessness, and both those groups who are very disadvantaged, are achieving at a much, much lower level than the norm reference point. And then if you look at the top group, those are kids who have not experienced free meals or homelessness. That's the only way that they're low risk. But they start off at the 75th percentile. On reading achievement and stay there. What you're looking at here is the extraordinary achievement disparities that many cities are worried about, and we are particularly concerned about in Minneapolis because we have very high achievement overall in our state, but horrible achievement disparities. And, you know, th- this is a huge issue. We're talking about between that top group and the bottom group a four year difference in achievement, it's a huge gap. But that's not the whole story here again. If you take the bottom group and now look at them as individuals, at their individual growth curves, you see this scatter plot here, the famous spaghetti plot, where you cannot make out any individual. However, you'll just have to believe me when I tell you that we're looking at a five standard deviation range here. What hits you when you see it this way is the variation. And about 45% of the kids, Um, in this group are doing okay, meaning average or better, on both reading and math throughout the entire period. And those kids clearly have a different situation or different resources than the kids who are achieving at the first percentile along the way. And these kind of data beg the question, what accounts for this? What makes a difference? Because we'd like to know what makes a difference so we can make progress on addressing these kind of disparities. So there's been a lot of research on this topic. School district data sets can be great, but they don't have as many of the protective factors of interest to people like me as I'd like, so you have to do some other kinds of studies. In these data, we do know that going attendance matters it turns out that homeless kids don't attend school as often. They miss a lot of school, and that does affect reading scores. And they all, it also turns out that a one-minute reading test in first grade predicts both the intercept and the growth here in these growth curves. So where you start off does matter. So there's been decades of research on resilience, and what I've highlighted in this slide is some of the most common protective factors that have been observed in many different kinds of studies. What's striking is that despite all the different types of adversities that have been studied, ranging from war experiences and being a child soldier to divorce or child maltreatment in the home, that a a small number of protective factors keep turning up in many different kinds of studies. And this led me in this book and other places to talk, describe the short list. What I mean by that, these are the most salient uh, protective factors that stand out in this literature and on the right side I've uh, listed what I would think would be implicated as the adaptive systems that account for those uh, things on the short list. And I would argue that these, we've heard about some of these today, but these are probably the leg- human legacy of both biological and sociocultural evolution. That uh, That's why they're so pervasive uh, in different situations and cultures around the world. Another interesting thing I wanted to show you about what we've learned about resilience is that in the history of the science, the study of individual child resilience proceeded almost entirely separately, surprisingly enough, from the study of family resilience at the family system level. The different group of researchers, they hardly ever interacted, now they're beginning to put their story together, and what I did in this article was just take the two literatures and line up the protective factors that are frequently described, and they show, I think, very striking Parallels across different kinds of factors. And I don't think that's coincidental. I think we're looking at either systems that are constantly interacting, so they're part of larger systems, or they've co-evolved. But you can tell me what you think later. There are a lot of roots of resilience in early childhood. And... Um, You know, there's great summaries uh, on that literature of why early childhood is so important, and I'll let you, this website here, the Encyclopedia of Early Childhood Development, has a lot of information on that topic as well as resilience. But what we've learned is that families matter in multiple ways, and what we've heard a lot about today underscores decades of evidence that either the absence or loss of caring parents or the presence of harsh, neglecting care, especially in early childhood, threatens and can have life-altering consequences for human development that lasts throughout a whole lifetime and possibly now even into the next generation. Adversity in early childhood around, you know, losing the quality of care or not having it creates a kind of double jeopardy for kids in early childhood because not only do they currently lack protection, but the absence of good quality care undermines the development of many domains of competence and compromises future resilience of of children. And we know that interventions that improve parenting, many different kinds of interventions that focus on boosting up parenting, whether it's foster parents, natural parents, Um, or adopting parents promote positive development. It seems to be a very powerful protective system. And in some cases, you get cascading effects, and we need to know more about when we do and when we don't. Here's some data from research in shelters, where I've done a lot of research over the years locally in Minnesota, showing the moderating effect of parenting quality on uh, child adversity. These are young children, like four to six-year-olds, in whose families are staying in shelters. Very high-risk group. And what you can see here, different kinds of way we've used different strategies of measuring parenting. On the right you have an outcome of academic functioning, how well the child is functioning in terms of achievement and academic things. And you can see here there's both a main effect for good parenting quality and a protective effect. So Good parenting always is associated with better academic achievement, but in high-risk situations, it's even more important to get an additional effect. On the left, you see a graph for child trauma symptoms, and in this situation, when adversity is really low, you don't see much in the way of child uh, trauma symptoms, but as adversity rises, you begin to see these symptoms, and then you also begin to see the moderating effect of good parenting. And in that particular study, the parent parenting was um, measured by observational coding in structured parent-child interaction. Child skills also matter, and. There's a lot of interest right now in executive function skills, and I see a lot of you out there using your executive function skills, listening to these talks, paying attention, figuring out slides, and so forth. But children need these kind of cognitive control skills to even enter kindergarten and begin to learn. They have to be able to listen to the teacher, sit on the circle, control the behavior, and so forth. And there's been a lot of interest in these skills because they predict school success And they do it particularly well for very high-risk children. Here's some data again from research with homeless children where we assess their executive function skills using a battery while they were in shelter and then follow them to kindergarten and first grade. And we find the kids that are doing well both in terms of learning and behavior have better executive function skills. And that's led people, our group as well as other groups, to try to focus on boosting executive function skills. Those interests loads of people because they show high plasticity during the preschool window, so we may be able to boost up the school readiness of children. Education also matters, and um, schools have a lot of the same features and characteristics of healthy, effective families. And I won't dwell on that. We can talk about it later if you like. And communities also matter. There's less research on the ways in which effective communities bolster resilience in the families and children that live within those communities. But there's a lot of interest in that right now to try to understand how that works. And there are important protective systems at other levels, both within the individual, at the neurobiological levels. And there's also uh, a lot of interest in the capacity that's embedded in the great religions and many cultural systems around the world. And I didn't have time to do that here, but those also line up with the short list. So children never could wait on scientists to figure it all out. If you have a child in your office or a refugee camp, you have to act based on what you know. And so as the science developed um, there were, people have tried to translate what there is knowledge from resilience basic science and intervention research into practice. And this, just this general process has had a transformative effect on practice and shifted the focus to, to away from just risk and vulnerabilities to protective processes and the idea of building capacity at multiple levels. So I want to close by saying that the, there's evidence of resilience all around us. That what I, I think of as ordinary human adaptive systems, nothing rare and extraordinary about it, but these ordinary adaptive systems are very powerful. Resilience can be nurtured and promoted. And the resilience in children depends on the resilience of of many interconnected systems, and particularly on the supports that are embedded in their proximal systems of families and communities. We can build resilience in early childhood programs, and it's important that we focus on that based on what we've heard today and based on a lot of other evidence that there's a very high return on investing in Early childhood, because there are multiple cascading effects across levels and across domains. And I'll just close by showing this picture. Um, I offer a MOOC on Coursera on the topic of resilience in children from a global perspective, and it's fun to have people join into the discussion forums on that MOOC. Thank you for your executive function here.